This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm your almost seminary graduate and A People's Theology host, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with Evan Keen and Kyle Trowbridge. Evan is a theological librarian and scholar of Protestant theology. Kyle is a master's student at the Christian Theological Seminary. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Rick Lee James. Rick Lee James is a singer-songwriter from Ohio. You can get connected with Evan, Kyle, and Rick and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, I have Evan Keen and Kyle Trowbridge, uh, and Evan is a uh, professor at North Park University and also works at ATLA, and uh, recently wrote a wonderful book called Theology Compromised, uh, or co-wrote Theology Compromised. And then Kyle is a fellow uh, CTS student, Christian Theological Seminary, with me, Uh, and Kyle is the one that got me connected with Evan, Uh, and yeah, so we'll chat all about uh, theology compromised. But before we get into that, first, Evan, uh, I want to ask you, who is Evan Keen to Evan Keen? And then I'll ask the same, same question to Kyle. Evan Keen is the kind of guy that, that knew ahead of time you were going to ask this question and has been overthinking it for a while now. Um, <laughs> Keeping you up I, at night. Uh, yeah, exactly. I don't know how to answer that. I think uh, as a as a theologian, I feel like I'm someone who likes to be uh, critical about my own faith and is interested in pursuing answers in lots of different places. Um, I uh, I'm very much think of myself as an academic. I think there are lots of theologians. It's a it's a a popular thing these days to have um, like church theologians or ecclesial mm-hmm. theologians. And I think that's great in a lot of ways, but my 
passion has always been um, the university context and mm -hmm. um, critical research in that way. Um, so that's that's what really um, gets me excited about this kind of work that I do. Theology in and for academia. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Kyle, who is Kyle Trowbridge to Kyle Trowbridge? Well, Kyle Trowbridge is the exact person who didn't think about this question before <laughs> you asked me this question. So I'm going to wing it. Um, yeah, I think, you know, uh, speaking of my work as a master's student, I'm somebody who likes to think theologically, but also with ethical and political questions always in mind. I have a background. My bachelor's degree is in political science, and I focused on political theory. And so anytime that I sit down with a theological or ethical text, I kind of ask, what are the practical implications of it? And also maybe the complexities of the argument and um, you know, when it was written, the contingent factors and, and so forth. So yeah, I, uh, I'm somebody who likes to, this isn't always, doesn't sit easily with texts without kind of broadening out almost immediately and thinking how they, and impact or influence other other disciplines and in other fields so mm -hmm. awesome and i have two dogs and a cat and i'm married so there's those two that's part of it too <laughs> so evan uh like i mentioned before you uh co-wrote theology compromised uh with matthew robinson um who wasn't able to join us uh in this conversation but uh what was something i, I don't know how many books you've written before or not uh, but what was something that you learned about yourself as you wrote this book in particular that's a great question um so um let me give a little bit of the background i guess uh, with with matthew and myself uh we we knew each other I, for a number of years uh but who we were we had gone to some of the same colleges and universities along the way, um, but didn't really connect until uh, two or three years ago when Matthew came to me with the idea for this book to work on together. Um, and at that point, I had written my dissertation and was in the process of, of getting it published. It's since been published. Um, but other than that, I hadn't written any other books. Um, and the experience is really was a great experience for me. Um, I had always liked the idea of, a, of doing collaborative work with people, but was very much not the sort of person who necessarily felt comfortable with that, actually taking the plunge into that. Um, Matthew approached me because he was a Schleiermacher guy, so one of the theologians we looked at in the book, and I was the Trulsch guy, which is the other main theologian that we looked at in the book, um, and, and thought it would be a good team for the project. Um, and I really found uh, we have some different emphases in, in what we're interested in looking at, but we have a lot of the same impulses um, for, for how we approach theology, how we approach questions of faith. Um, so it was just a, a fabulous opportunity for me um, to work alongside someone, actually across the ocean from someone. We mm -hmm. did this all um, online, uh, just corresponding with each other and video chats and things like that. Um, but, but need to, to collaborate with someone and for me to see uh, what, what theology could do in the world today. Um, I had approached theology 
in a much more, I guess you'd say like a, a much more dogmatic sense. Um, read a lot of Bart. Um, I wrote on Ernst Trelsch, who's a very uh, sociologically minded theologian, but wrote on a topic that was very sort of traditional philosophical theological questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the time I was done with that, I almost felt pretty burnt out by uh, the discipline of theology and, and, and what questions there were worth answering. Uh, and so for me, and connecting with Matthew and working with him on this book really opened up a lot of uh, cool questions about um, how theology could function in sociological, transcultural, um, empirical ways um, that, that was really um, a, a good stimulus for me to, to think about, you know, what, what sort of uh, what sort of research uh, could be done in theology and, and what could you, what you could put theology to use mm-hmm. for. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were sort of alluding this uh, in my next question, um, but as you mentioned, Matthew is the Schleiermacher person, the, the Schleiermacher scholar, and you're the more of the Troll uh, scholar. Uh, what was something that you learned about both with Schleiermacher and Troll as you wrote the book? Mm-hmm. Um, so we started, the book started as uh, it was going to be a translation of a short essay by Trelsch about Schleiermacher. Um, and, and maybe to put context for people who don't uh, know those names as well, Trelsch uh, wrote in the early 20th century, he was uh, a theologian who used uh, historical critical methods and approached theology very much from a sociological standpoint. Um, and Schleiermacher is better known um, as the, the father of liberal theology, lived mm-hmm. about 100 years earlier than Trelsch did. Um, so the project was going to be a translation of an article by Trelsch, uh, which Matthew had already done, actually, um, and wanted to collaborate on an introductory essay on it. Um, and as we started to do that, we realized there are so many interesting questions related to contemporary social theory uh, and, and how we think about uh, modern global society uh, that the project uh, ballooned into a whole book. Mm. It's a short book, but it, it's still much longer than uh, what we had originally intended for the project. Um, I'm forgetting now what your initial question was. I think it was something about yeah. What, what, what did I you learn through the process? Yeah, yeah, or yeah, what about those two in particular? Any any yeah. new like theology or something that you were unaware before with with either one of them? So it gave me a chance to think a lot more about Trelsch as a social thinker. Uh, I had written about Trelsch before on his idea of uh, what I call the absolute, basically. Um, ultimate things or eternity, which, which, like I said before, is a very kind of traditional theological topic to write about. Um, but it gave me a chance to to think about how um, these traditional topics in theology related to the complex world of social interactions, um, and how that connected to the basic insights that Schleiermacher had mm-hmm. um, between Schleiermacher and Trelsch as well. Uh, there's a whole history through the 19th century, and this is something that, that I think I really uh, took to heart, the, the, the guiding thread between them as we were writing the book of uh, the uh, diaconés, so uh, the German uh, version of the diaconate uh, basically developed through the 19th century 
uh, as uh, the social safety nets and, and social services um, that we think about when we think about like the modern welfare state. Mm -hmm. um, and those came out of an understanding of the social implications of the work of the church uh, and how the church was supposed to engage uh, with a, a modern, increasingly accelerating, increasingly fragmented society where, um, where it had a mission to serve in that context. Um, so uh, that came out of the, the Schleiermacher tradition um, throughout the 19th century and continued into some of the social work that Trulsch uh, did and, and wrote about as well. What I really appreciate about the book, um, and, and I think the title really gets at it, is um, is about exploring theology as it pertains to particular contexts um, mm -hmm. and how theology arises out of particular concerns. Um, and so, yeah, theology is a way to address particular and co contextual concerns, um, maybe like a sort of recent notion for a lot of people. Um, but how... Uh, but what are like ways in which you have seen this played out throughout church history where theology has been done as a way to address certain social and contextual concerns? That's a good question. Um, throughout church history. I should say in the modern period, I think uh, what, I, what I think we hit on in this book or, or try to emphasize more, there's a lot of recognition now of the social implications of theology. Um, but often I think it's, it's, it's uh, spun as kind of an opposition, you know, between uh, orthodoxy and, and orthopraxy or something like that, mm -hmm. uh, or between action and contemplation. Um, and what we try to argue here, and we're not the only ones who have done this, but we're trying to, to show a particular history of it, is um, not only is, uh, the, are the social structures important to Christian theology, but doctrine actually develops out of them and then in turn affects our social structures mm -hmm. in important ways. Um, through history, um, <clears throat> I think political theology, and I, and I know Kyle isn't a huge uh, fan of, of some of the uh, <laughs> uh, traditions of political theology, but that's identified some, some roots throughout church history, uh, the uh, basis of political legitimacies uh, in uh, pre-modern monarchies or, or pre-modern roots of representation and human rights. Um, I think those are instances where uh, doctrine affected how people thought about social relations, uh, and not always for the good. Um, and that's something uh, we try to emphasize as well, um, that uh, theology seeks to solve problems in social life uh, but it often does uh, a really shitty job of that mm -hmm. um, and often makes things worse. But I, I, th I think throughout church history, we, we see those sorts of interactions. We sometimes don't think about them that way because theology gets codified in uh, creedal statements uh, or mm -hmm. in uh, the books of uh, an elite class who, who is working in a systematic fashion to define what the faith believes. Uh, but in fact, the functions of theology are a lot more diffuse than that. 
uh, and they affect a lot more of our lives than just those codified versions of it. Mm-hmm. I think the sort of crux of the book is to talk about how uh, if theology is arising out of particular contexts and therefore trying to solve particular issues, then it seems that theology is compromised out of this like purity that it's sort of, you know, out, you know, it's done out of this like transcendent uh, activity or exercise that really has nothing to do with with what's happening in the world. Um, And so therefore, sometimes compromise can be seen as a weakness to this pure theology that may exist. how do you see theology, or how do you see actually compromise to be understood of as a feature of Christian theology rather than a weakness of it? Yeah, um, when we focus too much, and I think uh, reactions to criticisms present in modernity um, of the faith have given rise to understandings of supernaturalism or uh, absoluteness, absolute conceptions of truth or authority in the scriptures um, that don't uh, that don't adequately explain how uh, how theology can function in a compromising fashion in a negotiating fashion of give and take. Uh, without giving up what's at the heart of the gospel. I think that's the fear that people have mm-hmm. when they come to a proposal like this. Um, but f- the, way, the way we see it is, and, and this is something that I think theologians lag behind, philosophers and social theorists who are very well aware of this already, um, normativity and meaning, meaningfulness, are, are constantly bubbling up out of our normal social life with each other. Um, and when we're compromising, uh, what we're doing is engaging at the interpersonal level uh, with how uh, our neighbors live their faith um, and learning from them, building on our own understanding, criticizing our own understanding because of that. Uh, that doesn't need to be reductionist. That doesn't need to be uh, deconstructive of the faith. Um, Again, it can be. uh, It really depends. Everything depends on the social context. Um, But uh, if if our faith is constructed from our social interactions, we can affirm that in a positive way, too, that that our faith is actually constructed, that there's a positive um, end game there. Uh, and, uh, And I think that's how compromise works in, in all social structures, and, and, the, and the church is no different than that. Um, people feel threatened by it because it seems to be an abandonment of ideals, mm-hmm. um, but they never stop to answer the question of where did those ideals come from in the first place? And the fact is our ideals and our, um, our certainties about what's absolutely true come from our lived experiences. Uh, that when we engage with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. Kyle, um, I know that, you know, ever since this book came out, you have been really talking to me quite a bit about it. Um, I remember when it, I think, was even up for pre-order, you, you mentioned to me about, hey, this seems like something up your alley. Uh, what are ways in which this book has been influential in your own theology? I, I know you're sort of in the process of writing your thesis. I don't know if it's um, been involved in even the construction of your thesis, but yeah, maybe in general, how has it influenced your own theology? 
Yeah, I, th- I think what Evan and Matt's book has reinforced, and it's something that I, that I have always kind of felt to be right, though I didn't really have a, a resource to grab for it, um, is that the use of social theory and social science and theology need not be a boogeyman. Mm. Um, if philosophy can be used with theology, there's, I, there's no reason why social theory and social science and sociology and political science can't be used in some of the same ways. Um, does that compromise certain things? Yes, you're dealing with people and those disciplines deal, as Evan said, with lived experiences, maybe choices, pragmatic choices made on the ground that aren't always, that don't always have absolute or um, the ideal in mind. They're about trying to form your life together, whether it's in the church or in the political or in the social sphere. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been the, that's been the big thing um, that, that this book has kind of reinforced to me. Um, and it, it too has a, has a bibliography that has some, some other resources that I wasn't aware of that, that kind of hit on the same, the same thing. Um, I was, I mentioned it to you because, you know, um, a, you know, a people's theology, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it had, and, and I know that the, that, that there's sort of a broad liberationist sort of tinge to it, which can be expressed I, ideally, but I also think that the liberation theology at its best is sort of connected to the ground and, mm-hmm. um, deals with practical questions on a day-to-day basis. And so it's, in another way, it's it's a way for maybe more supposed liberal um, theology and liberation theology to kind of get back into better and more fruitful conversations with Mm -hmm. each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if I could jump in. Yeah, go ahead. uh, There too, because, and we don't, uh, we, we cite a few liberation theologians in the introduction, but we don't deal with that for the most part. Um, but I think that is one thing that, that Matthew and I hope comes out of this and some other projects we've worked on since then. Um, the idea that, uh, on the one hand, people like Schleiermacher and Trelsch are, are sort of on the cutting edge of, of what's, you know, liberal about Christianity. For, for those who, who haven't taken a, a step to understand sort of the insights that we're talking about here, with social theory, but on the other hand, they're two very parochial, dead white European thinkers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's questionable how much they have to say to us today uh, because uh, liberation, black, queer theologies, contextual theologies of all sorts um, have, I think, picked up some of the insights of, of people like Charles and Schleiermacher um, but but really left them in the dust in, certain, in terms of some of the, of what they've done in, in theology. Um, but uh, but the the older, more parochial liberalism, um, we would argue, uh, still has something to say precisely because it um, it, it is 
trying to achieve some of the same things that that uh, contemporary contextual and liberation mm-hmm. theologies are doing. And that doesn't mean they'll agree about everything, uh, but I think there's a conversation there that hasn't been adequately uh, taken advantage of by theologians, and, and people can talk more about that. Amazement at all the things you said Like a storm that rose above the quiet Kyle, I know that you had uh, some questions for Evan as well about the book. Uh, do you want to jump into a few of those? Well, back to the, the social theory, I think one of the main, as I, as I mentioned, one of the main um, benefits of the book is kind of putting social theory back on the field. But it might be helpful to kind of explain some of the problems that some theologians, particularly in the late 20th and early 21st century, have had with social theory being, um, um, I don't know, infecting, so to, for lack of a better word, the theological discipline and why it's important that, that we kind of push, you push back against that in your, in your work. Yeah, um, I think the uh, the biggest shift in, in the late 20th century that, that sort of speaks to what you're talking about here is uh, probably first a, a kind of uh, post-liberalism um, that, that tries to establish sort of an, an account, a thick account of uh, human community uh, based in, in a, a kind of theological grammar. Um, and, and then in the 90s, uh, we see a more... Uh, uh, Catholic version of this in the radical orthodoxy movement and, and John Milbank's work. Um, mm-hmm. And I think I'd maybe point to um, Milbank's opening lines in his theology and social theory where he says something like, um, there was a time when there was no secular or something like that. Um, I, there's At the root of these critiques of sociological approaches to Christianity is that um, supposedly secular social theory is an illegitimate development um, that that presents a sort of uh, false logic that's incompatible uh, with Christian theology. With uh, you even get this kind of uh, like John Webster um, is a, uh, was something like a, a Bardian post-liberal um, and, and talked about theological theology. Uh, so this idea for Theology to be truly theological, um, you, you have to root it in these this dogmatic logic rather than a modern social logic. Um, so that's the late 20th century context that, um, in in some ways, I think people are moving away from. But it's still a very powerful impulse in theology. Um, and what we're trying to argue is, um, and you know, there there never was a time when there wasn't a, a secular social logic that determined the ways um, that, that human faith made sense of uh, the world around us, mm-hmm. um, that there is always a social logic in play, and that that's not a destructive thing. That's how we form our doctrines. That's how we form uh, coherence when we talk about our faith. It, it seems to me that, you know, with, with narratives within the Christian tradition, like the incarnation and a narrative of the cross, and 
just even the entire narrative of Jesus's life and everything, it's just so culturally bound that it's really hard to have any sort of conception of Christian theology that can't or is unwilling to have um, some level of affirmation of the social conditions and social context in which we live. Uh, because the heart of it, the, the, the narratives that we sort of base ourselves on are very much themselves even within uh, a very social context with their own particular social concerns. Right. Yeah. And even when we are maybe affirming uh, the same confession, uh, we may use the same words, but the way that we, you know, interpret the words, the way that mm -hmm. we apply. So the, uh, the example I used earlier of, of the diaconate, you know, that's not a modern social form there. You know, that's something that, that was pulled from the New Testament, uh, but there was an application of it that was very context specific, and that's always going on. Mm -hmm. um, when we do theology in the sense of speaking theologically into social life, uh, and when we do theology in the sense of, of forming our theological understanding out of our social context. Mm -hmm. Kyle, you have any other questions for Evan? Yeah, I wanted to, um, we discussed the liberal and liberationist, um, kind of where they might, uh, with your book, See Eye to Eye. Um, I wanted to maybe pick out though a point where in reading it, there, there might be a liberationist critique of how compromise, theological compromise works in political ethics. And in a chapter of, in, in, your, in your book, I believe chapter five, it, it, it's a very um, extended review of Trelch's uh, uh, essay, um, The Political Ethic of Christianity, I think it's called. And he uh, could, he forwards two different approaches, the democratic and the conservative, um, and how they compromise within political decision-making. Um, how do you see that as, as something that could maybe forward that conversation more between more liberationist and liberal um, ideas of Christian political ethics? And of course, what are, what are some of the the differences in those two approaches. Yeah, so um, Trelsch's essay there came before World War I, uh, before uh, the revolutions after World War I. Um, and uh, it's important to note, speaking of social context, um, that Trelsch was always sort of on the way with his political thought. Um, so what we have in that essay, I think, is uh, a, a good account of uh, Trelsch's understanding of how uh, compromise is, is central to uh, both political ethics and the Christian faith. Um, and he lays out a typology of, of different political approaches. Uh, but he grew um, into more democratic sensibilities um, toward the end of his life. He grew from being uh, relatively supportive of World War I, uh, or at least certain aspects of the, the German argument for going to war to being more critical of it over time. Um, so uh, what I think, if anything, maybe, you know, Trelsch learned over time and a, a Trelschian sort of liberalism can learn from 
liberation theology, uh, when are the asymmetries of power uh, so great that compromise isn't an adequate ethical response, um, mm. that the negotiation of social differences doesn't give us something constructive, uh, but just reasserts um, the same problems of social organization that we had before. Um, when do we uh, identify a crisis situation that warrants a, a revolutionary situation, maybe is another way of putting it. Mm -hmm. um, Trelsch is always very open to history being more complicated than the typical progressive liberal understanding of it would make us believe. Uh, he's very aware of the fact that we sometimes take one step forward and two steps back. So I think there's an openness in Trelsch's social theory to say there will be these moments of crisis uh, where compromise gives way to a more absolute voice from the mm -hmm. people, maybe you mm -hmm. could say. Mm -hmm. um, it is, it's not something that he emphasized throughout his work, uh, but, but it is something that I think he learned over time, um, and, and it might be uh, the place where you could find some common ground and where Trelsch uh, might stop and listen uh, to the, uh, the liberationist mm -hmm. theologians. Mm -hmm. I was just going to follow up just something uh, textual that, that Evan said that from Trelch on kind of when maybe compromise isn't necessary or when it's maybe in question. Um, in that, in, that uh, in his political ethics and Christianity, when he's talking about um, the conservative type or the aristocratic type, he mentions a couple of things. He says, he says one, if it doesn't involve the if it doesn't uphold the common good, uh, in other words, it involves no promise of permanence. So there's no, there's no, there's nothing intrinsic to it that says that an institution has to exist for all time. It's intrinsic. Um, if it loses its inner substance, its inner moral substance, it can go away just like really anything else. And since we're in sort of the post, uh, George Floyd, we're recording this uh, three weeks uh, or so after um, the protests have started. He has a number of things that he lifts up that a, Christ, that, that, that a practical Christian ethic might lift up. Uh, the respect for persons, um, the behavior between social classes. And listen to this. This is in 1904. Mm. The con the conduct of officials and police towards the people is something that he was able to see then as something that when it is firm, when, when it sort of presses into practical significance, as he says, a Christian political ethic will always keep the conduct of police and authorities in mind as it, um, as it pertains to the to to the people, so um, there's definitely some stuff there to kind of think about and to think through um, that aren't just maybe parochial or conservative. There there's some stuff there that kind of pushes out of those moments a little bit too. Right. Yeah. yeah.
Today I have Rick Lee James. And Rick Lee, is it Rick Lee or is it Rick? What, what do you go by? You know, you can just call me Rick. I had to put my middle name in there because uh, as many listeners will know, <laughs> there is another Rick James or was before he passed away. And, and Dave Chappelle made him famous again Very famous, years ago yes. in his skit. So there was a time back in the days of MySpace when I actually had a Rick James page. And just overnight, I had like thousands of followers. And then I had people that were mad at me because I wasn't the Rick James they expected. And I thought, what is going on? And look I a little different the than name. that Rick James, too. <laughs> That's right. So I used Lee mostly just for my web presence. And so there's no confusion. But yeah, uh, yeah. So Rick is totally fine, though. I didn't even put two and two together. That, that would make sense. So uh <laughs> You, what I really love about your sound is you kind of capture, uh, at least in your last album from 2019, you have this sort of Rick Mullins vibe. Is that like, was that an intention? Do you kind of feel like that was a, a like a sound you're trying to heart back on? In some ways, yes. Uh, the title track, Thunder, it is actually a Rich Mullins song that was mm. never released uh, when he was alive. And uh, I'm I'm good friends with Rich's first publisher, Randy Cox. Okay. And uh, he was uh, a publisher at Lifeway. And, and I have a number of songs that have been published with Lifeway Worship. And I did an mm. album with them a while back. And sort of through that process, he had, uh, he had maybe, I think, around 20 songs that Rich had written but never recorded or published or anything. Um, and he came to me and, and long story short, asked if I would maybe be interested in recording one of the songs. And I just loved uh, the song Thunder. I thought mm. it was great. Um, so, so yes, uh, the, the very first song on the album is actually a Rich Mullen song. Wow. And we tried to kind of get a lot of different musical styles on the album, but I did as much as I could want to be something that was musically eclectic, which I think Rich was. And I, I'm a big fan of, of especially lyrically. I just really mm -hmm. love Rich Mullen's music. I don't know that there's uh, a better musical poet. Um, I, I Maybe Andrew Peterson is somebody that mm -hmm. I think is, you know, on that caliber today, but, uh, but he was one of the greats for sure. So, um, so any influence you hear, I'll just say thank you if you think it reminds you of Rich Mullins. <laughs> I appreciate that. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what it's like to be an artist in this kind of COVID era? I know that you released your album last year. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what you might have been planned right now? I know yeah. you're obviously probably not being able to do anything yeah. live, but may maybe there's other projects that you're working on. Maybe there's a new album that you're working on. What, what, what do you have yeah. uh, in the pipeline? Well, yeah, you know, last year it was kind of kind of crazy and had a lot going on with the new album release, and and thankfully had a lot of good press around the album, partially because it was in some loose form connected with Rich Mullins, and so right. that was kind of neat. Um, once you know March hit, because uh, I'm also a, a worship pastor at my church, mm. so I'm I'm part time there, but my church lets me travel whenever I need to, thankfully. Um, I haven't done any traveling at all since uh, at least February, probably of this year. Mm. And, you know, hoping that I would get out and still do some more touring on Thunder because I've released a single or two since then. Um, so a lot of the work is still going on, but it's on things like releasing singles to radio and, mm -hmm. and hopefully finding a place on some of those stations. Uh, and thankfully, uh, the latest music video that I put out, I, I kind of put a lot of energy into that. It's a song called Love Our Enemies. Mm. And the video, it, it hit with like, we were supposed to film the music video um, 
at right about the time when the pandemic was hitting right around March. And then obviously it was like, well, I don't, the idea was originally we were going to stuff a bunch of people in a room and sing this together, you know, and <laughs> then it turned out, well, we can't do that. And then it just kept getting moved and kept getting moved. And, and so it was like July before, you know, I could just assemble a handful of musicians, but what became of it was we got to be even more creative, not in the sense that we were recording a new project, but, the video itself had so much footage from like it was hitting right around the time of the George Floyd mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. protests. And there was there's so there's footage in the video of, of different protests. There's footage of riots. There's footage of uh, in the beginning of people really uh, having a lot of anger. But towards the end of the video, as the song hopefully is helping us take a journey um, through the of Jesus about loving our enemies, the the scenes and the images start to change and it, it becomes more videos that have to do with um, settings where people are receiving life. You get to mm. see newborn babies and you get to see people hugging and, you know, and, and to me in this time, I, I miss that. I miss giving people hugs. I'm not like a super big hugger, but right. you know, I, I do when I haven't seen somebody, I, I enjoy, you know, doing that. So uh, that was a really long answer to that, but I've, I've been trying to not, so much like focus on writing new material as much as working with material that's already been out. Right. But there, but there has been a, a few songs that I've written through the pandemic time and, and trying to write for my congregation specifically. Mm. Um, like how, how do we worship again when half the time we aren't even supposed to sing or, you know, you right. got to have a mask on and it's, it's been very challenging. Um, I, I have my first gig this coming week, uh, time of a recording. It's the last, the last week of September. Uh, and this is an online thing that a local church Ooh. is having me do um, that's just for their congregation. Um, so I'll go in and I'll record it at their church and then they'll broadcast it later, edited together with some things for a service. Wow. But I'm like, I'm really itching to get out and do some playing again, because for me, as much as I love writing and I love the studio, what I really find life in is being with people in a live setting. And, and I just enjoy playing and that energy that comes from that. So mm -hmm. um, and there's been a couple of online concerts I've done between now and then, but life is, has looked really different, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. for sure in these days, but there's been a lot more time at home with family and I'm writing down things constantly, but I haven't been doing a lot of actual, like putting it together because life has just been so busy. Right. My wife right. teaches, I'm basically home helping teach my son all the time. And then I'm doing things at my church. And so uh, I don't know what it looks like for other musicians, but for me, it's been very busy. Plus I do two other podcasts as well that, mm. that I host. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so for me, it's been pretty busy for sure. For sure. I love that. Well, uh, thank you again for sharing your music. Uh, I, again, I really love the way that you sort of recapture Rich Mullins in this really sort of new 2019, 2020 uh, vibe. Uh, I, I really appreciate the work that you've done just around like kind of uh, just worship in general, but also the way in which you've incorporated, you know, recent events happening in our world. And um, yeah, I, I just have really appreciated our conversation in that regard. And so uh, thank you again for, for sharing your music. Well, thank you, and I, I really appreciate you talking to me today. It's such an honor to get to come on your show, and I enjoy listening when I have a chance. Sure, thank you.
So Evan, the tagline of my podcast is uh, in exploring, inspiring, and liberating theological work. Um, and you know, you you may or not you you may uh, sort of uh, want to appropriate those uh, those terms or not. But how do you see theology compromised as inspiring and liberating theological work? If you want to to claim those at all. Yeah, no, I think those work. You said exploring, liberating, and and uh, or inspiring. inspiring and liberating. Yeah, inspiring and liberating. Um, they've certainly inspired and liberated me mm. uh, to to find new questions that theology can ask, even in writing it. Um, Matthew and I continue to work on on a few projects. We actually just did a. a conference panel this morning by Zoom, um, it, you know, because no conferences are meeting right now in person. <laughs> um, and a lot of what we're working with is um, new sorts of questions that theology can ask uh, that are qualitative and empirical in nature. Um, so asking questions like a social scientist or an anthropologist might ask to get at the sense of, I think I love the, the title of your podcast, The People's Theology, but to, to get at the sense of, of what the people's theology is, uh, that as much as theology gets published in books of the sort that uh, we write, uh, it's constantly welling up from um, the social interactions of uh, regular people, including ourselves when we leave the seminary classroom and, and come home and, and reflect on our own faith. Um, in maybe a more mundane way. Um, so a lot of the questions we continue to ask together um, are um, how can we um, show the ways that theology functions in a much more mundane and every, everyday way? Um, similar to uh, there are projects of ordinary theology or lived theology. These are mm -hmm. kind of some names of, 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 of recent approaches to theology. Um, when, when we're doing sociological theology, that's what we want to do. We want to, um, to look at where uh, theology is growing up in new ways um, and not simply in uh, textbook systematic sorts of ways. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Uh, last question, Evan. How can listeners get connected to you and your work? And then I'll ask the same question to Kyle. Yeah, um, I... Uh, I have I, I keep a, a site I guess you I could give it to you to to put on on the link for for the podcast or something, mm -hmm. um, and and that links to to the books that we've written. Um, it's in uh, Humanities Commons uh, website. Is that kind of what you're looking for? Sure, sounds yeah. great. Um, so so folks can go there, um, and uh, I'm sure Matthew has something I can send your way as well too. Awesome, great, Kyle. Uh, how can listeners get connected to you and your work? They can follow me on Twitter at, at Kyle Tro. That's K-Y-L-E-T-R-O. Quite a great uh, Twitter follow, by the way. I thank you. I would say so myself. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, they can they can follow me there. Um, I've got a few reviews coming out soon that I'll post up there. I've got uh, I just reviewed Philip Ziegler's Militant Grace, which is up now too. So. Uh, yeah, I've got some some content coming up, and then uh, the review for this book's going to be out soon too. So, um, yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much, guys. I I really appreciated your work, uh, Evan. Uh, I really uh, 
Yeah, resonate. I, I'm not really familiar with Schleimacher. It's certainly not Trosk, but uh, I really have appreciated the insights that even hundreds of years ago, they've been able to to provide uh, to people in the uh, 2020 even. Um, and then Kyle, we, you know, we've, we've known each other, we've taken classes together and, uh, I, I just always appreciate your, uh, your difference in our, in our theological approaches and our theological traditions. Um, and you have become over the last couple of years, a really wonderful colleague and friend. Uh, and so I just appreciate, uh, your presence in my life. So thank you so much uh, to both of you. Thanks Mason. Thanks Kyle. If you'd like to connect with Evan, Kyle, and Rick and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. Oh, you